Sorry. <laughs> Today's reading is taken from Genesis 29. So we're reading the whole chapter. It's all right? Okay. <clears throat> Jacob arrives in Padan Aram. When Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples, there he saw a well in the open country uh, with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds, would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place of the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson, Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he said. They said, sorry. <laughs> yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. What are the sheep? And take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still t talking with, with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel's, Rachel, daughter of his uncle, Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her, her father, and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for, <clears throat> for you seven years in return for your daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give you her to you than to some other man. 
Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because, he loved, uh, because of his love for her. Then, <clears throat> then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is complete, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant, servant Silphan to his daughter as her attendant. When the morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Then the Lord saw Leah was not loved. He enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love, will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to, the, to her son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he, named, so he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to her son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. This is the word of God. And we want to welcome Alex McCoy, who's from the uh, St. Andrew's Church. Uh, thank you very, very much for coming to share with us today. Well, a very uh, good morning to you. It's good being back. It's been a little while since I've been here. I enjoy uh, catching up with uh, some of the, I guess, the, the younger folk around the place for retreats every now and again. I think we have one in a couple of weeks, so looking forward to that. Um, let me pray for us as we kick off.
Loving God and Heavenly Father, since without you we are unable even to understand you, guide the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand your word, which was written for us and for our understanding. Guide its understanding into our hearts so that in doing so we might be able to live lives which honour you. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may remember hearing the news, it was, it was a few years ago now, about a Russian model. Her name was Ruslana Kushinova. You might have heard about her untimely death in New York City. It was a little while ago. It was reported that her friends, understandably, reacted with shock. Because here was a lady, a young woman, who had it all. Uh, looks to die for, really, a, a catwalk regular, um, cover appearances on Vogue and Elle magazine. She had a great apartment in a glamorous city. She was 20 years old. Life seemed like it was all before her. She would have been the envy, envy of many people. But in the days after she threw herself off her balcony in her apartment, off her apartment, reports trickled in about her state of mind. She left vague messages telling her about a broken relationship. Love, she said, is the essence of life. Uh, Love does not take away from one in order to give to another. My dream is to fly. Oh, my rainbow is too high. I'm lost. Will I ever find myself? Now, here was someone who had a deep, deep desire for romantic love, uh, desperately seeking a purpose and meaning and fulfillment in life through a romantic attachment. Now, I wonder how serious is this thirst, this desire for romantic love? Is it possible to find complete fulfilment in this particular area of life. Uh, some say, some say uh, romantic love is the particular interest of women, but I'm not sure I completely agree. I think it's fair to say that everyone, every person needs to feel as though they are loved by at least one person in their life. Not, not necessarily a romantic love, but a deep care and attention, an affection that someone else shows towards you. In his book about marriage, uh, Dr. Larry Crabb says, he said something that really struck me. He said that every person, every person needs to feel two things in life. They need to feel these two things. And if they don't, they'll simply malfunction. Crabb argues that our basic needs are of security and significance or of intimacy and impact. He suggests that we all have this need for security and intimacy, to know for sure that there is someone in my life who thinks about me, who cares for me, who loves me in an intimate way. I need that security and intimacy in life. But then he also talks about how we have this need for significance and impact, to know for sure that we have done something in life, that we have achieved something great, that we've made a difference, that we've got something that we can take satisfaction from in life. And so we all chase after particular things. It might be a particular relationship, a reciprocated love, or it could be a success in a particular field, sport, 
or career, some social or political cause, or it might be um, an imagined standard of living or comfort. All of us have something that's hardwired into us, which makes us chase after these particular things. But what happens when that which you have placed your heart in fails to live up to your expectations? What happens when your hopes fail to materialise? Is part of our existence in life, is part of our experience of disappointment and frustration, of, of broken relationships in life, partially because our hopes fail to materialise. Things don't quite meet our expectations in life. We have disappointment and frustration because of unfulfilled expectations. At the extreme end of unfulfilled expectations and the associated disappointment are the Ruslana Korshinovas of this world. Everyone lives for something. Everyone invests their heart into something. Everyone is a slave for something, something which captures our imagination, something which we give our time, our money, our hopes, our aspirations to. Everybody has got something, something which we look to that's created, which we give our sense of meaning and hope and aspiration in life, something which we hope will give us the happiness that really... In reality, the Bible, only, the Bible tells us only God can give it. Everything else will fail to deliver. Now, this morning, we're looking at, again, the story of Jacob. And in Jacob 29, the, the passage that was just read for us, we see an example of how this quest for love, as good as this quest might be, can become a form of slavery and end up in bitterness and brokenness. Uh, For those of you who have just joined us in this sermon series, we're looking at the life of Jacob. And so a little bit of context first before I push on with chapter 29. Jacob, you might know, is the grandson of Abraham. God appeared to Abraham and, and gave him a promise. And one of the promises was that he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through your family. And what that means is that in every generation, there's going to be somebody who is going to pass on that blessing to others. I'm going to work in one particular person's life and pass on that promise to succeeding generations. One person whom God will walk with and pass on to the faith the next generation. We get to Jacob, whose twin brother is Esau, and there was a prophecy You might remember the prophecy was that the older would serve the younger. Ordinarily, Esau, as the older twin, would receive the firstborn blessing. But the prophecy said that Jacob would. Now, you might remember Esau was his father Isaac's favourite. Esau got the attention, he got the affection, he got the love from Isaac, not Jacob. That was Jacob's situation. And you might remember that one day, one day, he deceives his father, Isaac, in order to get the blessing of the firstborn. He deceives his blind father. And as a result, Esau finds out and he is bitter with rage and vows to kill Jacob. And so Jacob has to flee. He has to flee his family, his father and mother, and he has to travel off to a far distant country. His life is in ruins. 
For all intents and purposes, as far as he knows, he's lost his inheritance. He's lost his family. He will never see his mother again, the mother whom he loves. And he has to go wandering hundreds of miles off to a distant country. And here he meets his uncle Laban. And he starts to work for Laban as a shepherd. And one day Laban says to him, hang on, you're working for me. I should pay you. What do you want me to pay you? And we catch up with the story from here, from verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years for the younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. So stick around, stay with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. Now remember, Jacob's life is a mess. So what does he try to do in order to fix up his life? Well, what are the wages he proposes? Rachel. He proposes Rachel for his wages. He'll work so that he can get her. Now, what do we know about Rachel? Well, the Hebrew text literally says that she had a great figure, that she was beautiful. And Jacob was smitten. He noticed he was smitten, completely overwhelmed by her. And a few things give us this impression from the text. First of all, Jacob offers seven years in exchange for Rachel. That's what his wages are going to be. And apparently, according to the going rate for wives at the time, this was far above retail price. I mean, he should have been paying maybe about 18 months, but he offers four times, seven years for Rachel. But to Jacob, she was worth it because we hear in verse 20, So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to her because of his love for her. That's the first impression we get. Second, when it comes time for Jacob to marry Rachel, he says to Laban something which highlights his sense of desperation. Verse 21, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to sleep with her. Now, the Hebrew commentators all point out how really graphic and brazen this request is. Imagine, imagine saying to your prospective father-in-law, okay, time's up, time to pay up, I want to sleep with your daughter right now. Now, I have three sons, I don't have a daughter, I don't know how to make girls, but if... If I had a daughter and some guy came up, I don't care if he's going to be my prospective son-in-law and he said that, I'd be going looking for the shotgun. You just don't say that type of thing. But, it, but here you have an indication about a guy who's in such an emotional state, such a state of frustration, sexual frustration, longing for a woman seven years, the desperation... Now, why is there such desperation from Jacob? Well, I think it's because his life was empty. He's never had his father's love. Esau was his father's favourite. And and Jacob had lost his mother. He's not going to see her again. Then he, he meets this beautiful woman, 
the most beautiful woman he's ever met, and he must have said to himself, if, if I could have her, if she could be my wife, then that'll fix everything else. That'll make my life worth living. All the desires of his heart, that search for meaning and fulfilment, everything was fixed on having Rachel. Now, Jacob might have been a little bit unusual for his time because normally in that time, you didn't necessarily marry for romantic love, you married for status and family advancement. That's not unusual in the ancient world. Maybe Jacob is a bit more of a modern guy. Maybe he's a bit more of a modern guy. Think about how our culture portrays love. Uh, This is a bit of audience participation, okay? So wake up, audience participation. See if you can pick the title and the artist. There's nothing you can make that can't be made. No one you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. Anyone get that one? All you need is love by the Beatles. All you need is, yep, there we go. Second one. This one might be a bit easier. First time you feel it, it might make you sad. Next time you feel it, it might make you mad. But you'll be glad, baby, when you found that's the power of love to make the world go round. Anyone get that one? Come on. Huey Lewis and the News. Huey Lewis and the News, The Power of Love. See, in our music, our movies, our TV, our magazines, we all load our deepest heart's desires on this search for romantic love. It's almost as if you cannot live a functional life without finding this ultimate romantic love. When my wife and I were married, we were thinking about putting a song on during our wedding that had the lyrics we were thinking about. We didn't end up doing it. You're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody cares. So many of us maintain the hope that if we find our deep soulmate, everything in life will be healed. It'll be all right. And so how did it work for Jacob? He offered to work for Rachel for seven years. Sucker, right? Laban's thinking. So that's four times above market rate. And Laban saw how lovesick he was. And so he spotted an opportunity to take advantage of Jacob's condition. When Jacob asked if he could marry Rachel, Laban is deliberately vague. Remember, he says, well, I suppose it's better than she marries you than somebody else. You notice... He didn't say yes. He didn't say yes. He didn't say no, but he didn't say yes. Laban was deliberately vague. And so seven years passed until it was time for the wedding. And as was customary, there's a great wedding feast, there's alcohol, there's dancing, there's music and all that type of stuff. And in the middle of the celebration, Laban brings Jacob, his wife, And according to ancient rituals and all that sort of stuff, she's no doubt heavily veiled. And probably quite drunk from the occasion, Jacob goes and he sleeps with his wife. But in the morning, there came a surprise. 
Uh, not long before, not long, I should say, after Megan and I were married, uh, Megan, who you might see is normally a brunette, she decided that she wanted to be a blonde uh, one evening, and so she dyed her hair blonde. Now, because she's not a hairdresser and uh, she did it herself, it was end up being a little bit more strawberry blonde, a little bit of orange in there, but she can tell you about that later on. She did it in the evening, and I decided I'm going to go to bed because um, this could take a while and I'm not going to be any help or encouragement in this process. So I went to bed, and uh, I woke up the next morning with a blonde (laughs) in my bed next to me. And you know how you get up in the morning and you're trying to get your senses together for for the first 10 seconds, I'm thinking, oh no, what have I done? What have I, what have I done? What's happened here? Now you can imagine Jacob's surprise. He goes to bed thinking it's Rachel, but he wakes up and it's Leah. You can imagine his surprise. Shaking with anger, he confronts Laban. What is this that you've done to me? We agreed. We agreed it was going to be Rachel, but you've given me Leah. Wrong daughter. Wrong daughter. Can you take her back? I want my money back. But what does Laban say? Well, it's not our custom here. It's not a custom to give away the younger before the elder, finish your daughter's bridal week, finish my daughter's bridal week, then work for me for another seven years, and you can have Rachel. Done deal. Jacob was caught hook, line, and sinker. But I wonder if you notice, he doesn't fight back. Maybe it's because in that moment, memories of that event years earlier came flooding back to him. Jacob says to Laban, you've deceived me. And he remembers, hang on, I've deceived my father. That same word in Hebrew is used in both occasions. And Laban's defense seems to push that comparison even further. It's not right for the younger to receive the blessing before the elder. It's customary for the firstborn to receive the blessing. Jacob, remember, the firstborn gets the blessing first. In Laban, Jacob had met his match. His protests were useless. And so now he would have understood how Esau felt, how Isaac felt. And now he'd serve seven more years to get Rachel, but he'd have forever a divided family. Seven more years for Rachel because he wanted her so much that he heard and saw whatever he wanted to hear and see. Because Rachel just wasn't the object of his love. Rachel was his saviour. She was all he hoped for in life. And so Jacob's life is forever affected by that event. And so are the lives of his wives. One wife who is loved, that's Rachel. One wife who is not loved, that's Leah. One whose children are adored and spoiled and favoured, that's Rachel's children. And one whose children are neglected and embittered, that's Leah's children. Now, if there is a casualty in this whole story, it's Leah. The narrator only tells us one thing about her, 
that she has weak eyes. Now, some assume that this meant she had poor eyesight, you know, she'd run into things pretty easily, something like that. But the passage says that Leah didn't have poor eyesight and that Rachel could see. It's that Leah had weak eyes and Rachel was beautiful. So weakness probably meant that either she had a deformity with her eyes, like she was cross-eyed, or that she was unsightly in some way. Leah wasn't easy on the eyes, so to speak. The point is, Leah was not attractive. And she had lived her whole life in the shadow of her beautiful younger sister, Rachel, who was an absolute stunner. Everyone noticed her, they didn't notice Leah. And Leah, sorry, Laban knew, he knew probably as a father, that he would have had difficulty to marry off his older daughter, Leah. And so when he saw how love-struck Jacob was, he spotted an opportunity. Laban saw an opportunity for a good price, seven years for Leah. That was good. But the casualty was going to be Leah. She was the girl that no one wanted. Jacob didn't want her. And so she set her heart upon having her heart filled. She set her heart upon getting Jacob's love. Jacob became her idol. Now, I think these verses, in in, in many respects, are some of the saddest verses in the Bible. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, She named him Reuben, for she said, It's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and she gave birth to a son, and she said, Because the Lord has heard that I'm not loved, he has given me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and she gave birth to a son and said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I've borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. What was she doing? Well, she was doing the same thing that Jacob was doing. She was trying to fill this emptiness in her life with someone else. You see, in Jacob's case, he was trying to fill the emptiness in his life with Rachel. In Leah's case, she was trying to fill the emptiness in her life with Jacob. You can see it by how she names her sons. The first three sons, Reuben, Reuben, Simeon and Levi, are all named in the hope that Jacob will notice her, that he'll love her. It's her heart's fondest desires. And she's thinking, you know, if I give my husband sons, if I'm a good wife, then maybe then, hopefully then, he will love me, that my life will be fixed. But you notice... It wasn't working. Child after child after child. Every day she's condemned to see the man that she loves showing love to not her, somebody else. Every day she continues to be in the shadow of her beautiful younger sister. It would have been despair, a living hell for Leah. Now, I don't know how you go with this story. Maybe a little bit depressed, right? Sunday morning, woohoo. I don't think this story is telling us to avoid romantic love. 
But it is telling us that sometimes our deepest desires can enslave us and lead us to bitterness and brokenness and disappointment. We say to ourselves, if I can just get Rachel, everything will be all right. If I can just get Jacob, my life will be worth living. Um, When I was 10 or 11, my brother had this massive poster of Raquel Welsh on his wall. Now, some of you who are a little bit younger than me won't know who Raquel Welsh is. She was the kind of aspiring glamour model come actress of that sort of generation. Now, it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I uh, came to realise what a very fine actress she must have been. Anyway, uh, she did an interview with a magazine uh, in which she said this, I reached a point of my life when I had achieved all the desires I had as a young girl. I had a wonderful husband, an exciting career a beautiful house, and great children. But I was desperately unhappy. It frightened me to think that you could have everything you ever wanted and yet be so unhappy. Now, unfortunately, it's not uncommon for people to summit the mountain, you know, to get everything that you ever set your heart's desires on, to look around, to realise that you've had it all and think, is that it? and be desperately unfulfilled and unhappy. Now, in many respects, the Rachel experience, sorry, the the, the Jacob, the Leah experience has been the common human condition ever since Eden. You know, we take something good like romantic love. We take something good like that and we turn a good thing into a God thing. We turn it into our ultimate heart's desires. It's not just romantic love. We can do it with all sorts of other things. We create all sorts of rival gods. Now, I'm not asking you whether or not you have a rival God. I'm assuming that all of us do. All of us have something in life which competes for God's affection. There's an old saying attributed to Archbishop William Temple. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, your true heart, the the true God in your heart, is where your heart goes, where your thoughts go, when there's nothing else demanding your attention? What do you think about when there is nothing else demanding your attention? What do you daydream about? Do you daydream about your career, the advancement, the next job, the promotion? Do you daydream about the next house, the next holiday? Do you daydream about that guy or that girl or the kids making your kids functional, whatever it might be? Think and you'll realise that we all have idols. We all have rival gods competing for God's affection. And chasing after those rival gods, pursuing them all the time, will just leave you empty. If you put all your hopes into someone other than God, you're going to crush that person under the weight of your expectations. No human is qualified to fill that role. No human can bear up under the weight of all your expectations for happiness in life. You're going to crush that person, you're going to end up disappointed. If you put all your hope of fulfilment and satisfaction and value in your job, what happens? 
when you succeed? (laughs) What next? Or what happens when you fail? How can you forgive yourself? Or what happens when somebody takes your opportunities away? You go to bed thinking it's Rachel, but you wake up with Leah. But there is hope. I wonder if you notice. There is hope in this story. If you look closer, you'd see that Leah is the only one who makes real spiritual progress in this story. And we see it in how she names her sons. Because for the first three boys, for Reuben, Simeon and Levi, she uses the word for God, which is the common, the generic word for God. You see it in Hebrew, it's the word Elohim. But for Judah, she doesn't do that. She uses the covenant name for God, Yahweh, the name that God gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob when he made promises to them. And the only way that Leah would know of the covenant name of God, Yahweh, is if Jacob had told her about the promises that God had made to his grandfather and father and to him. Here was the God that she was attaching herself to, the God of promises, the God of grace. Now, we don't know why, but finally with her fourth son, she gets it. She lets go of Jacob. She has a breakthrough. She names him Judah, which means finally, I'll praise the Lord. There's no mention of her husband. It seems as though finally she's taken her deepest hopes off of Jacob and attached them to this God of grace. Jacob and and Laban, her husband and her father, had effectively stolen her life. They had made her life miserable in many respects. But here she was giving her life to the Lord and she was getting it back as a result. She's getting her life back. Perhaps God was saying to her, trust in me. I'm the husband to the husbandless. I'm the the father to the fatherless. I'm the God of grace. You see, there's nothing special about Leah. But God loves the unwanted. God loves the unloved. He loves those who have no credit in their accounts. He's not just a, a king to his subjects or a shepherd to the sheep. He's the husband to his people, us. And he is completely smitten with you. He loves you. You are his heart. He's the God of grace. And he knows that we need a saviour. Not just because ultimately those things that we chase cannot ultimately satisfy us in life, but he knows that those things that we chase cannot save us. They can't bring us redemption. Now maybe, maybe Leah had a sense that something special would happen through this fourth child. In Genesis 49, later on in the story, we're told that through Judah, through his line, one of his ancestors would come one who would hold the scepter, who would rule, one who would be the Messiah. And this ancestor, this descendant, would be the line of the tribe of Judah. He was truly Leah's son because in him we're told that there was nothing beautiful, nothing about his features that would make us attractive to him. 
He was born in poverty. No one wanted him. And he came to his own. And his own did not receive him. And he ended his life with those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, once you see what Jesus did to win you over, that he paid everything for you, he paid everything, he went to the cross. Once you see that, then all those other things that you chase after in life, as good as they might be, they're not worth it in the end compared to him. They no longer have such a strong hold on you as they once did. Jesus looks at you and said, I'm smitten with you. I've given everything for you. What more motive? What greater, what greater pleasure do we have in life than to give, therefore, our everything to him? Let's pray. Loving God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this old, old story that still has such profound relevance for us today because we see in the life of Jacob, in the life of Leah, ourselves, we chase after things that are created often very good things that you've given us, but we turn those into rivals for your love, a love that only you can really fulfill in us. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for investing all our hopes and aspirations and joy sense of fulfilment in life, in things that ultimately cannot satisfy in a way that you can. Help us, Lord, to give our hearts to you. Lord, we know we can't do this on our own, so we pray that you might guide us, fulfil us, fill us with your spirit, remind us continually of your son's completed work on our behalf. And Lord, as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment, Help us to reflect, remember and give thanks for the price your son paid on our behalf, for his body broken, his blood shed for us. Guide us, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.